Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, fam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson here. Today discussing the most improved teams this offseason. How you doing, Sam? Doing good, Steve. You? Doing all right. Doing all right. And uh, I want to start by saying, if you did not listen to Thursday's podcast, I'm not saying go listen right now, but soon. But go listen right now. Don't now. I mean, we're you're listening to us you know, for most improved teams, but... I would go check out the Randy Moss podcast. How's the feedback been, Sam, for the first uh, ever kind of oral history look back at a topic from you know over twenty years ago? It's been good. It's been encouraging. I think it's I think it's setting us um, setting us off to do some more. Um, I'm working on one at the moment. You're working on one. Eric is working on a pretty cool one as well. And then we had one kind of die on its ass because one of the uh, one of the main protagonists had some problems. We're just going to keep dropping hints and nuggets (laughs) like that. It's going to be like 20 questions until somebody guesses what happened. Go through the news over the last 30 days and try to figure out what it was. Uh, Anyway, I I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I thought you did a great job. You you did um, the majority of the heavy lifting, pulling it together and... Um, check out the uh, check out the article on the website as well, because, you know, one, about the only criticism we had from the piece is a lot of people saying, look, it could have been longer. would have loved to hear even more of that. Um, and, yeah, I kind of felt that as well in terms of we had so much stuff from these interviews um, that was, you know, on the cutting room floor, as it were. So I, I created an article where we were able to stitch in a lot more of the the content we got from Solomon, from Pete Bursich, from Robert Smith. So there's an article up on pff.com as well, which gives you a lot more info, plus the, the embedded podcast in there as well. So yeah, generally check it out. I think it's, you know, amongst the best stuff we've ever done. 
from an audio sort of quality standpoint, I think it's right up there with anything. Um, I saw somebody on the YouTube comments said it was like listening to a Radio Labs podcast, which is great. You know, I, I was really happy with how it turned out. I thought our, our guy Tyler Sobchak did a phenomenal job putting it all together. And I'm really excited for any future ones we do. He did. And, you know, again, it was I think a lot of people listen to us because they want to know what's happening in the NFL right now. Right. Whether it's in season, we're going to, you know, re- recapping weeks and looking forward right now. We're going to talk most improved teams. People like uh, looking forward to whatever is going to happen this season or this particular week. But this is one of those things where it's a look back and whether you're a Vikings fan or not, or a Randy Moss fan or not, or whether you even remember this time period, I think it's fascinating to just really go through the story. And I thought the story was well laid out by you, the way you kind of, um, you know, went from start to finish about just how special that Randy Moss 1998 season was. Yeah, I don't think you need to be a, uh, a Vikings or a Moss fan, to be honest. I mean, we've heard people give us comments like, look, I'm a Packers fan. I hated Moss, but this is this was really good. This is worth listening to. So, yeah, whether you're a Vikings fan or not, I think it's worth your time. Well, I think we have to address the elephant in the room here. Luis Alvarez in the uh, YouTube comments is asking if I'm ready to make my MLB debut if, if baseball doesn't come to terms. What if they hmm. if they bring back some You're going to be a, a replacement player? Why not? Because you went like 4,500 draft picks without anybody selecting you. You think you're going to be first off the bench in the replacement league? I think I could I, I could hold my own as a replacement player. You, so you never gave me an answer. You, I sent you this video of, what's that guy's name, Ichiro? Yeah, like Ichiro. Like, beaning five, like, posts from wherever I fire, like, five consecutive balls, just bam, bing, 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 bing. I didn't I see was it. like, if you had those... He was, he, was, he was throwing whatever. it? He was like, yeah, from... Whatever the standard distance is, he just took five balls, beamed it, hit a post each one. This is like a upright baseball, right? Or an upright bat. That's how oh, big I the guess. target was. Yeah. Just hit five consecutive. I was like, if you had the same five throws, what? how many are you hitting? I mean, hitting bats was like, that was my thing. <laughs> right? I well, was that really was, good that at involved somebody. <laughs> that involves somebody else moving his bat to connect with your pitch and sending it off into the ether. Listen, if I'm anybody like can hit a barrel, target. it is me. So, five for five, getting smoked. I don't think you're hitting any of them, to be honest. Anyway, I'm probably not making a comeback anytime soon, but we'll see. We'll see. I might take. I probably need about three good months to get back into baseball shape. <laughs> <laughs> three months. Who are you kidding? Give me two years, baby. <laughs> All right, let's get into the most improved teams, and then we'll uh, we'll answer some questions. Um, so I don't think we did this, did we? Uh, this isn't a repeat, right? I don't think we ever had this so. full off season no. recap, and I think it's due. You know, looking back at everything, you know, and this is one of the most fun things about football, or you know, following sports in general. I think is the team building aspect, right? That in in football especially. Uh, people come to pff.com as much in January through April as they do during the season because they want to know what's their team doing. So let's go back through free agency and trades and everything that went on the draft. And you have a top three and I have a top three. I'll let you go first. The top three most improved teams, starting with Sam, give me a team and we'll we'll discuss. Yeah, so mine aren't in order, and you did it first, so I got like the crappy end of the stick. Yeah, no, because uh, uh, you 
you took yeah. the obvious winners. You could steal um, one of them. You could steal my second one there if you. I know no, I'm you good. Like I'll them. stay. I'll stay with my group. I'm happy with them. All right. I'm going to go with the Dallas Cowboys first. Okay. Um, I think the Cowboys had probably the best draft of any team in the NFL. We've talked about it before, right? Their draft was like improbably good. Uh, it was the kind of thing where if you'd seen it before the draft in one of those draft simulators, like say the one at PFF.com, um, you, it, like people would have been complaining that your sim was unrealistic. Like there's no way those guys are going to be there when the Cowboys select them. Uh, CD Lamb falling all the way to 17. Trevon Diggs in the second round when people were mocking him in the first round of the Cowboys. Um, they just kept going like pick after pick. It was a guy that was at least a round later than everybody had him going. So they had one of the best drafts, no, the best draft of any team in the NFL. And they've made the change at at head coach. You know, for years, people have been criticizing Jason Garrett as the thing that's holding this team back. It's like, look, if they just had some coach that could add value on top of this, clearly Jason Garrett isn't the guy doing it. They bring in Mike McCarthy, who spent his time between jobs coming to places like PFF and researching and, and understanding how he would do things better and, and, and make improvements and give himself more information the next time it happened. He goes to Dallas, um, keeps around Kellen Moore, who was the sort of darling of last season's coaching staff. I think all those things together should, in theory, put this team in a much better spot than it was a year ago. And they've kind of maintained the things that were there a year ago and good with the obvious sort of up in the air caveat that Dak Prescott remains, you know, somewhere in limbo. I think there's a couple things working against each other here. When you were looking at most improved teams, were you thinking through the lens of just for this year or just in general, hey, they're going to be better moving forward? Uh, I mean, pretty much just for this year, but I think that I think this qualifies either way. So that's where I, that's where I was going too. And my concern with Dallas is is, is going to be in the secondary. And so I think I think there's a lot of numbers on paper. You know, the, the, the easiest analysis is looking at last year and saying, how well did this team play? How many games should they have won? How many did they win? And a lot of whether you're using traditional just like points for point, you know, point differential, essentially using grades, using how efficient the offense was. I think whichever way you slice it, Dallas left some wins on the table. And despite what happens with coaches when, the, you know, leaving wins on the table is more luck than you know an inability to finish or an inability to win or teaching your team how to win so in other words if dallas goes out there and plays just as well as they did last year they're probably a 10 or an 11 win team now then you add cd lamb as you mentioned with the draft and all that stuff i think my concern with them as a one year most improved you know how quickly does the mccarthy impact actually take hold how how much of an impact will cd lamb truly have as a rookie number three wide receiver and losing Byron Jones in that secondary, leaving Anthony Brown, Cheetah Bay Awuzier and Jordan Lewis, and then second rounder Trayvon Diggs. That's not a, to me, that's not a great, you know, where is that secondary ranked? It's bottom half of the league, at least I think, right? I mean, maybe bottom third of the league. So I've got some concerns about Dallas on the defensive side of the ball. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot, to like about what they did also Dak Prescott being number two in wins above replacement last year that was not in line with the rest of his career that is that just mm-hmm. an anomaly right is that so how do you look at Dak from that is that 
he had a full season of Amari Cooper. He had the first full year of or first first year of Kellen Moore. How much was he influenced by those surroundings, which are still there, by the way? But can he even sustain that? All that said, plus That's, Travis Frederick retired. I mean, come on. How much better can they be? Yeah. Travis Frederick retiring is significant. On the other hand, Travis Frederick last year wasn't the real Travis Frederick. That's kind of why he retired. Yeah. You know, he was obviously dealing with that medical condition, Guillain-Barre syndrome or whatever it is. Um, and last year he was nowhere close to where he'd been in the, in, in the past. Uh, I don't have the numbers to hand. I'll get them in a sec. Um, but he was not the player that he had been heading up until this point in his career. So he's walked away. What I'm saying is that last season, the Cowboys were really good, and it kind of sets a low enough bar for his replacement, whoever it's going to be. I think that's going to be something of a camp battle to come in and replace what he brought and still not have a massive drop-off on that offensive line. So overall, obviously losing Travis Frederick is huge, but the Travis Frederick they lost was not really the Travis Frederick that he'd been from the start of his career. Yeah, and so you went back, you talked about the Cowboys and, you know, their their creative draft and all that stuff. And and I don't disagree with that. I think it's fantastic. But if you go through their draft picks, C.D. Lamb, awesome, great. Now you've got three wide receivers that you can use and deploy all over the field. Great start. But a big part of the reason why I liked the Cowboys draft was more to do with how those players are going to develop and kind of the slots that they fit in. I mean, I mentioned Trayvon Diggs. Right now, he's the number four cornerback. I don't know that he's ready to contribute as a rookie, but I think he's got the size, length to play a little bit of press man, give them some flexibility, and it gives them some leverage with four-fifths of their secondary all in the last year of their contract. That was part of the reason why I liked that pick. Part of the reason why I liked Neville Gallimore, the defensive tackle in the third round, is because he's just a crazy athlete who needs needs to learn how to play football a little bit better. So maybe a down-the-road pick. And then Tyler Biotish, the fourth-round center, could be the Travis Frederick replacement, but he also has his own issues in pass protection. So I liked a lot of their picks because of where they're going to slot in. But in my mind, it was a lot of years two and three for those guys other than maybe CD lamb. So for this year, there's some things pointing in, the, you know, in, the, in, you know, in Dallas's favor and some other things I think that are a bit of a projection. So Frederick had five straight years to open his career with an overall PFF grade between 85 and 90. Basically like consistent, awesome every single season. Last season, and then missed obviously 2018 with the, the illness. 2019, he actually played, but 85 to, 80, to 90 dropped to 69.9 to 70 essentially. Um, total pressures doubled from, you know, like a baseline of 10, 12, something like that, up to 24 or 23 rather. So, I mean, he wasn't the same player a season ago. So that player, I think, is very replaceable. The player that he was before he had the illness, very much less so. One of my favorite things in football, too, is is watching coaches come back in new situations because it's, you know, it's just what we do. Like we we tend to like pigeonhole coaches into like, here's what they do, right? Like when John Gruden came back, I think everybody was expecting to see the 1999 Raiders offense with Rich Gannon at the helm, old school West Coast offense. And but like one of the stories is like, how much do they evolve? How much do they look different from what they were before? Last time we saw Mike McCarthy, people were talking about him wasting Aaron Rodgers career, uh, having the most talented quarterback, you know, since Patrick Mahomes until Patrick Mahomes came in and not having elite production every single year, having a quarterback who 
took too many sacks, didn't throw to the middle of the field, and only running slant flat because it's you know his favorite concept, and that's all they ran. Now we've got one year of evidence that maybe a lot of those issues could have been Aaron Rodgers and not Mike McCarthy. And we also have McCarthy coming in and, as you said, le- keeping Kellen Moore, right? Keeping a guy, not calling the plays, not completely running the offense, we don't think, the way he did in Green Bay. So I, those stories are always uh, very, very interesting to me is seeing how coaches evolve in new places, especially a year away, like you mentioned, with McCarthy kind of taking in new information. The evolution of coaching systems and schemes, I think, is maybe one of the most underrated, uh, least talked about things that impacts the NFL. We, I don't know if this was, if it's a, a reflection of the pace that this is happening at now, or if it's just we didn't realize this was the way it needed to work before. But you know, we we always talk about these coaching trees and. You know, great coaches, they spawned this network of, of uh, underlings, of disciples that would take their scheme with them and it would proliferate throughout the NFL. And, you know, Bill Walsh is one of the most famous ones. Bill Walsh creates or is the, the main architect behind this West Coast offense that with Mike Holmgren, with Andy Reid, with John Gruden, it, it starts going everywhere throughout the NFL. George Seifert takes over once Bill Walsh retires, like his underlings his disciples his assistants are all over the league mike shanahan as well um, steve mariucci right all over the place and uh we we used to think that was the way it was right you would get this great system and then your guys would just take it throughout the league and that would dominate and i don't know if that ever worked to that degree but now it's the league is sort of changing so fast that you need to be able to come up with the next iteration because defenses figure you out in like a year too Um, there's no longer this sort of system that just breaks defenses perpetually because everybody, and I think maybe it's because everybody now plays a little bit of everything, right? You, the West coast offense might've been able to just beat the defenses that were being played because people didn't change what they do on a week to week basis. It was like, right, we're a man coverage team. We play man coverage every single week and that's what we do. And if you have something that breaks man coverage, you win. Like, we're just not stopping that. We're not going to figure out how to play zone in the space of a week preparing for you. But now you look at, you know, these offenses that come in and even ones that take the league by storm. In two years' time, if they haven't evolved, they don't work anymore. And you could sort of see this even going back to that 98 season with the Vikings. Like, Randy Moss almost forced them to be an offense 10 years ahead of its time. They ran 11 personnel at a time where nobody was running that much. Um, Chris Carter moves into the slot and becomes this phenomenalist Michael Thomas-like receiver. Randy Moss becomes a deep threat. Jake Reed is on the edge. And they had this this offense that defenses just weren't equipped to defend. And it, But it wasn't all the way. It was like a modern offense, but it wasn't quite there. You know, I've talked to you about this before, but they didn't have the quick game and they didn't have the adjustments and they weren't able to deal with the blitz or with pressure because they hadn't figured out this sort of hot route and, you know, the various other things that are built off, off this type of system that function in today's offenses that let you deal with in theory, everything that's thrown at you from a defense, the, the 98 Vikings are like most of the way there. And they were so explosive and so ahead of their time that it worked. But every now and again, like against Tampa where they lost that one game, Every now and again, a team would start to throw enough at them that they couldn't really deal with it. And they, they weren't able to make the adjustments and get the ball out of Cunningham's hand quick enough 
in a way that today that would be part of the offense and you wouldn't be able to deal with it. So like this idea of needing to evolve your system constantly, I think is really important now. And the coaches that are going to be the best are the ones that have shown the ability to constantly stay a step ahead of defenses like Andy Reid or Bill Belichick on the other side of the ball to kind of constantly stay ahead of offenses. Like if your thing now is, well, I just have this good system and it's really good, but I, I got, we're just, our thing is about executing that better than everybody else. No, you're going to, you're you're not going to last long term. The system, the, the guys that rely on system and play calling are basically, they're, they're trying to play blackjack essentially, right? They're just trying to play the odds over and over again and say, Look, I've got enough information in my brain that when they call this, I'll call that and it's going to win. But, right. you know, if I make the wrong call at the wrong time, like we're in trouble. You, but they don't have answers, so to speak, built into the play. I do think that the best teams, I always say this, the best teams, the true balance on offense isn't run pass. It's the ability to win at all levels of the field in the pass game and then run the ball when given the opportunity. Right. If a team is going to play five in the box or really light or whatever, and you can run for seven yards a pop on them. Go for it. If that's the answer to win in that given week, you go for it. I think the the problem is when teams reverse that and say, no matter what, we're going to try to average seven yards a pop and establish the run, and you fail 15 times and you do it well once and you keep chasing that one. The best teams say, if you're giving us a short pass game, we're taking it. If you're going to give us shots down the field, we're taking it. If you're going to let us run, we're going to take it. So, And look at, you know, look at Kyle Shanahan. That is a million miles away from the original, you know, father of the system that it came from even his literal father like the mike shanahan system versus the kyle shanahan system like it's a it's a it's miles away kyle shanahan has been constantly um evolving that offense and adding new wrinkles and it's no longer just this sort of alex gibbs original broncos you know wide zone and nothing else like there's so much more to that system now he has been constantly evolving it the whole way and that's what you need to do to stay at the forefront yeah, even last year, it, it just they added so many new wrinkles. So I, I love it. Um, the Cowboys are always a huge story, but we get to see Dak with a new coach, Mike McCarthy's second shot, you know, losing their best defensive player and Byron Jones, most important defensive player. You know, there's a lot of storylines there for the Dallas Cowboys. I'm going to go with that was just one team, Sam. My most improved mm. team. Uh, I'm going to again, no order for me. I'm going to start with the Indianapolis Colts, though. I think if we're talking for this season, just going from Jacoby Brissett to Philip Rivers, I think there's some risk with Philip Rivers at quarterback, but I also think it's very overblown when people are saying, hey, I saw him throwing ducks last year. He's done. Like the dude's been throwing ducks off and on for the last eight years, and he's bounced back from him. But like 2012, he looked like he was done. 2013, fresh start, new offensive coordinator. He was great in 2013. 2018, we're not that far removed from 2018 where Philip Rivers at least had his name in the MVP conversation that Patrick Mahomes uh, dominated. Rivers was in that mix. He was going head to head with Mahomes in games and beating him down the stretch and going to the playoffs, beating Lamar Jackson and the Ravens in the playoffs, losing to the New England Patriots like Rivers is in a situation now where he finally has an offensive line. He's got the indoor environment. I would have liked to see. They did invest with Michael Pittman. They, they don't have the best playmakers in the world. They're probably bottom third of the league there. But I think this team, you add DeForest Buckner on the defensive line, the Colts, I think are most uh, one of the most improved teams in the league. The Michael Pittman pick, I think, 
justifies the gamble, I guess, in DeForest Buckner. It's like, look, if you're going to trade for a guy like Buckner, you bring in a Philip Rivers believing you're sort of a quarterback away from contending, like receiver is still very much an issue. And you are, by trading away number 13, you are basically gambling that by the time it rolls around in the second round, you're still going to have a viable receiver to go for. And they did. So they, they snagged. Michael Pittman there. I think that's huge, particularly not just because it was like a receiver to add, but because stylistically, I think it's a perfect receiver as well. You know, you've got a T.Y. Hilton, you've got a Paris Campbell, those sort of smaller speed type receivers. And then you add Michael Pittman, this much more big bodied Philip Rivers-esque receiver. Um, so I think that kind of makes that whole offseason strategy. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think they were already a really good roster and they were one of those teams that could genuinely make the case as being a quarterback away from contending again and assuming Philip Rivers is that quarterback, which is still up in the air, they'll be back there. They at least have a shot, right? I mean, they have a shot, I think, with Rivers. Brissett put up some good numbers halfway through the season and then uh, grade was never that good. Those things kind of regressed back into where they needed to be. And uh, that's why, you know, the offense just uh, there's a lot of room to improve there. They also had Jonathan Taylor in the second round. We'll see how much they try to lean on him uh, combined with Marlon Mack if they do try to uh, become a really uh, run-heavy team. But again, I I like the idea that if strategically they're taking it from the approach of, hey, we're going to take what the defense gives us, then you want to have a decent runner back there. I I still think they can dictate the action, though, with Rivers spreading the ball around. He's still fantastic in the short and intermediate game. Uh, has enough arm to at least give guys an opportunity down the field. And to your point, Hilton and Pittman, completely different types of receivers, and then Paris Campbell can play that number three role. I think if you were trying to develop Paris Campbell into a number two wide receiver who's just fast and doesn't know how to run routes right now, I think that would be really risky. But as a number three gimmicky type of player like he was at Ohio State, that's a good situation to be in. And then defensively, you know, they, they've improved the pass rush a ton the last couple of years. Justin Houston's still there. DeForest Buckner is the addition. Um, and the defense has shown that they can play a zone-heavy attack and just kind of like, you know, stay in games pretty much. Not so much dictate the action with, you know, a man-heavy type of look. They've got okay corners. They've got pretty good linebackers. They have a pretty good defensive line. It's just pretty good across the board. But I think Rivers and that passing attack at least gives them a shot in the how hard could it be AFC South <laughs> plus the rest of the AFC South pretty much getting worse, right? Other than maybe the Titans. Yeah. I mean, they certainly didn't appear to make any great inroads. Um, I mean, you can, can make the Jags, I guess a lot of people are talking up, but theirs is more of a long-term play than a short-term play. Oh, I think, but a lot of people are calling the Jags the, you know, in the running for the number one overall pick. And I'm yeah. I'm having trouble with if, if Gardner Minshew plays to the same level as last year, it's going to be really tough to pick number one overall. Mm-hmm. Like he'll he'll have them at least five wins, I think, if he plays well with the with a poor roster, uh, maybe more. Uh, but yeah, I think you know Houston. All by all, everybody agrees it's a, been a disastrous offseason, but they still have Deshaun Watson. Tennessee, pretty much status quo from last year, but tough to duplicate. While the Colts took a jump and they got better. All right, give me your other your your next team, Sam. Most improved next team, teams. I'm going to go with the Broncos. Um, look, so everything with Denver hinges on whether Drew Locke is actually the real deal or not, and we don't know. Like he barely played last season. 
the there was a ton of excitement around what people saw from him last season, but I think so much of that was literally like he's not Joe Flacco. Like there is some reason to be optimistic. He's young and he made a few big plays, and that's a hell of a lot more than we can say for Joe Flacco, so it's time to rejoice. Um but like there was a ton of bad in there as well. Basically we have no idea. Like we don't know what Drew Locke is gonna be. But Elway clearly didn't have time or the the sort of rope to be able to say, look, I'm going to bin it all again. I'm going to take another quarterback in this draft. I'm going to start all over again. He like is basically tied to Drew Locke. So he said, look, if I'm tied to this guy, I'm going to give him the best possible chance to succeed. So Jerry Judy slides all the way to 20, like absolute jackpot scenario for the Broncos. They're not done, though. They come back in round two and get K.J. Hamler, who's one of the biggest X-Factor playmaker type players in this entire draft you already have a Cortland Sutton on board you already have Noah Fant on board a tight end you come back in the fourth and get Drew Locke's favorite target from his college uh, days I just think the Broncos have done so much to propel Drew Locke or to at least give him a platform to succeed that if he does if he's got that kind of skills and I think you know I, I there was enough to like about him as a prospect to say that he at least has the talent I think they could be pretty good. So when I look at your two t- first two teams, Cowboys and Broncos, you focused on two of the better drafts that we saw. I already started with uh, a team that, you know, the Colts, that well, it wasn't necessarily about the draft. It was about the veteran quarterback that they added. I might have another veteran quarterback late, in, you know, or, you know, team on my list. Um, so I guess my, my concern, I agree, they're definitely improved. My concern is, you know, how much do you expect? from those wide receivers in year one. I love it. I mean, I love the concept of getting to three deep on your wide receiver depth chart, four deep really. But now Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler. That's fantastic. It's, you know, adding those with plus Noah Fant, you know, Noah Fant was a guy that we, we thought was more of a second round tight end prospect. He goes in the first round, but when you have him, you don't want, you didn't want to have to make Noah Fant your number two passing weapon necessarily but if he's the number three or four weapon with his his ability to stretch the seam the best thing he does is run fast in a straight line um Mm -hmm. much like uh hamler runs fast in a straight line judy they've got speed all over the place even albert O in the fourth round they've got speed all over the place i love what they've done from an offensive team building standpoint the offensive line should be reasonable enough um plus a steal like jarrell casey just grabbing him for a second a seventh round pick uh, on the defensive line. Yeah. So there's a lot of good moves there. Uh, bring Justin Simmons back on the franchise tag. Losing Chris Harris after all those years could be tough. I, I have some questions about the secondary, Sam. I don't know about A.J. Boye and uh, you know Bryce Callahan's a good slot corner. I don't know about number two cornerback there and just what they're going to do uh, in that division, especially going up against the Chiefs. But uh, I love the way they're building that offense for sure. Yeah, I think Boye was as he was a significant acquisition. Um, I think any anytime you're losing a, t- a cornerback as good as Chris Harris, that's a major blow. But I think Boye should at least go some way to mitigating that loss. You're right, number two is still a question mark, but I, they've got some decent safeties. I think which is usually an important part of covering up a questionable second corner. You know, you can do some. Uh, damage limitation with some quality coverage players outside of the cornerback position. You look at the way the Vikings have kind of covered up their problems in the secondary that way. 
So definitely question marks. I think that's a potential weakness, but I I like what they've done to be able to sort of hide that weakness. Yeah, Vic Fangio has done a good job of of building strong defenses without elite cornerback talent through the years. The the all average Prince of Mukamara, as an example, Sam, hmm. with the uh with the Bears. I will say too, the the balance between saying I like this move versus like the confidence you have that it's gonna pay off. Like AJ Boye for a fourth rounder, I make that move all the time. But my thought process in making that move is I hope I get the dude that we saw in 2016 and 17 with the Texans in 16, Jaguars in 17. He hasn't been that guy in 18 and 19, but for a fourth-round pick, I make that move every single time. The downside, though, is that he's just, you know, kind of a below-average corner like he's looked in, you know, recently, and he's not your number one, you know? So the, the move, I think, is great because the payoff could be incredible for a fourth-rounder, but, it, you know, it's a little risky. So I think a lot of pressure is going to be on the scheme, you know, to protect those guys and, um, you know, just scheme it up that like the way they've done and on the rookies to uh, to hit the ground running right away and, and show off their playmaking ability. But, yeah, they're moving in the right direction. Uh, I'm going to go with my next team, uh, Tampa Bay Bucks, as far as most improved. And mm. they are here's the thought here. Jameis Winston's way better than I think the perception is because of the 30 interceptions. He has led pretty productive offenses in part because of the receiver talent and the tight end talent and all the guys that he could throw to. Um, The interceptions are a little overrated as far as like how bad they are for the team. However, when you get up to 30, when you have over 40 turnover worthy plays, just cutting down on half of those and boom, like you're in a lot of games, right? So You've got that dynamic where from the Bucks' point of view, they're saying, hey, we're bringing in Tom Brady. He's not going to throw 30 picks, right? He's going to take care of the ball. We're going to be in every game. We got Mike Evans, Chris Godwin. Now they add Gronk. We'll talk about him in a second. But the, from a Brady perspective, when you're evaluating quarterbacks, those positively graded throws in the PFF system, those are the ones that tend to fluctuate. Those are the ones that are kind of dictated by the supporting cast. And that was the place where Tom Brady took the massive step back last year. That directly coincides with his worst supporting cast in his career. I know there's question marks about him and Arian's system, but now being able to throw to Godwin and Evans, OJ Howard, Cameron Brait, and Gronk, I think Brady gets back on track. The Bucks get back on track. Plus, that defense took a step forward last year. For whatever that's worth, they have way more talent on defense in the right place in the secondary uh, than they've had in, in many years. Yeah, that defense was good towards the, the back end of the year. Um, I I think this is a slam dunk. This is one of the most obvious ones. Um, you're right. It, it all hinges on Brady, obviously. But I think there's no reason to expect Brady not to bounce back, given – I think if you watch the tape in New England, it's clear that the problem was receivers, not Brady. Yeah. Um, I, I think Brady isn't the player he was when he was playing – you know, literally the guy bounced back from the first time he was written off and then had maybe the greatest like three year stretch of quarterback play in NFL history. He's not that guy anymore. I think that's fair to say, but neither is he the player that he looked last year. Almost all of that was down to the receivers or the lack of receiving held there. Suddenly you replace the worst receiving core in the NFL with arguably the best, one of the best anyway. It should immediately you're talking about two completely different players, essentially right from the outset. Yeah, so I think 
yeah, the Bucks, like you said, they're slam dunk. The the challenge there, I think, though, is they're in the division with the Saints, mm-hmm. the Falcons, the Panthers. I don't think will be all that good, but those battling the Bucks and the Falcons, that's going to be tough. They do play the AFC West. Both the Saints and the Bucks have to play the Chiefs, have to play the Raiders, Chargers, Broncos. Some of the yeah, I, I don't. The schedule might not show massive improvement, but I do think that team, you know, it gives them a shot. It gives the Bucks a shot to at least make a playoff and Super Bowl run with Brady at the helm. Um, and plus, who the heck knows what you get from Gronk, right? Like if you get right, if you get 2018 Gronk, that's great. But if you get like 30 snaps per game of 2017 Gronk, that's like six or seven catches, you know, at the right time. <laughs> you know, that's that could be a huge weapon. Plus, uh, the comfort level for Brady there. So I think the payout is potentially massive for the Bucs. Yeah. Like the sample size of guys who have essentially taken a year off from the game and come back is so small that I don't think you're ever going to get anything meaningful out of it yet in terms of what that does. But anecdotally, the ones that have, it's been pretty successful. You think of guys like Richie Incognito, like, as you say, Gronk, Gronk left the league not looking like Gronk, kind of like Travis Frederick, right? The last year we got from each of those guys wasn't really that player. He still made a few really key plays in in the biggest times, but like his grade absolutely cratered in 2018 compared with his previous baseline of just the best tight end in the NFL. Like if he's the 2018 guy, he's still a good, useful addition to this team. But a year off getting healthy for a guy like Gronk, who was battling injuries throughout his entire career anyway, like a year to get 100% healthy, no football, no contact, no impact to deal with. There's a reasonable chance, I think, that he could get a hell of a lot closer to the 2017 and before version of himself than the 2018 version. And if, that, if they get that for essentially nothing, that's incredible. Like that's one of the best moves in the entire offseason. Yeah, it's a weird dynamic. Like if you're a – what do you think is more important? Like if you're a power player taking the year off – versus a speed player and Gronk's both right but like which part of his game is more likely to come back I think he got into wrestling shape by the way I think getting his speed back getting that half a step back because that's what he lost really he lost about a step in 2018 he just wasn't separating the same way Uh, we talk about Brady throwing to receivers without separation like he lost a little bit of Gronk separation that year and they only showed flashes of their prior selves, right? That particular season. And they did it down the stretch in the, you know, the Super Bowl in the fourth quarter. But it wasn't the same. If Gronk gets that step back, like I don't care if he's back to the same run blocker. I don't care if he's slimmed down a little bit and he's not the same Hall of Fame tight end. But if he's an uber slot weapon that can stretch the seam and you know put fear into defenses from a pass game standpoint, that's more important. Do you think you can get that step back more than the power and getting back on track as a run blocker? Because I think that's more important. I mean, I think, I don't think it was age or, you know, just general physical decline that did him in. I think he just, he got broken down at this point. This is a dude that's been wearing like a whole scaffolding unit on his arm for like the majority of his career. (laughs) Like this is a guy that's dealt with some pretty severe injuries over the course of his playing time. Like a, a year to get healthy, I think, is huge for somebody like that. That's just been dealing with this constant beatdown of of their body. Like a year of not having to have some giant two hundred and eighty pound defensive end smack you in the face twenty times a game has got to be huge. All right, Sam, wrap it up. Give me your last uh, most improved team. 
the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, and it's almost 100% <laughs> Joe Burrow. Like, it, like Going from, you know, Andy Dalton is not a bad quarterback. Andy Dalton is solid. He's okay. Now, remember, they didn't have Andy Dalton for a lot of last season. Like Ryan Finley was starting a bunch of games for them. Right. So going from a situation that got you the number one overall pick to snagging a guy like Joe Burrow who had – you know, basically the best college season we've ever seen, one of the best in college football history, has to propel them back to contention, not contention, but back to respectability. Um, getting T. Higgins in the second round, I think, is important, giving him a sort of a legit receiver to grow along with. Getting A.J. Green back, I know that's kind of cheating because he's already on the roster, but this is a guy that didn't play for them at all last season. And when he's healthy, is one of the better receivers in the NFL, even given his age at this point, those three together, I think, can immediately turn this offense from being a mess last season to being, eh, okay with Andy Dalton to being something good again. Did you even mention Jonah Williams? No, but you're right. That's another one yeah. that, that should count along with uh, along with the, the A.J. Green thing, a guy that was already on the roster, but I mean, Williams hasn't even played for them yet. Yeah, I... I, I keep the uh, the Bengals analysis always seems to be like, hey, look at all these first round picks they're getting back, either due to injury right. or whatever it is. I mean, that's the case with uh, Jonah Williams, at least getting him at left tackle. The the line still doesn't look great at all on paper. But if Jonah Williams can at least uh, live up to a little bit of the first round hype, that helps. And um, and yeah, I think A.J. Green is primed for uh, for a bounce back. T. Higgins primed to become the next guy to replace AJ green. Potentially we'll see if he can do that with, you know, with him and Tyler Boyd there. We talk about rolling three deep. They have it. Um, also John Ross always blinds me with optimism, man. I, my, my speed <laughs> guys, it. man, my speed. I, John Ross is like, he's like wide receiver Jameis for you. It's just the one year. This will be it. This will be the year. He puts it all together. You know, this behind the scenes PFF IQ stuff I'm, I'm working on and just trying to give teams, uh, you know, essentially serve up our best information for, uh, for decision-making, right? And you look at John Ross last year. He was one of the best receivers, small sample size, mind you. 97th percentile when facing single coverage and like third percentile when just, you know, underneath stuff, zone, zut. Remember the zut stuff? Yeah, he, he's just, but like you see him against single coverage. It's like, wait, you're quick. You're fast. You can run away from people. You do all this stuff and then he's just dropping passes and running the wrong route at other times. It's just tough. But as a number four, where every now and again you just steal one of those, you know, deep shots and schemed up plays. I love that. So, yeah, the Bengals could be dangerous, man. What are your thoughts on their secondary now with Trey Waynes coming in, Mackenzie Alexander? They bring in the former Vikings. They bring in those Zimmer guys into that defense to complement uh, William Jackson. I like those moves. I, I mean, I think Mackenzie Alexander in particular I think could be – like a significant upgrade when it comes to the slot. Like he, so he was the guy that had actually started to turn his career around and looked really encouraging for the Vikings. Um, now it was a limited sample size. So there's always questions about whether he'll sustain it long-term, but like I could Mackenzie Alexander, I could see actually being a really good player for somebody. Trey Wayne's, I think it's basically a sidestep in terms of getting average cornerback play at the number two spot. You know, they had Drake Kirkpatrick for years, Trey Wayne's, I think, can be that, which is a guy who he's he's like fast Prince of Mukamara, right? He's like consistently average. He's not as good as Prince. 
I'm pretty sure he's about the same. But he's like fast, bang average. And every now and again, like he'll, the problem is bang average at a corner when you were drafted 11 overall is seen as like this crushing disappointment. So the Vikings, you know, moved on. But for a team that's coming at it from like a second, uh, a second contract or, a, a, you know, a veteran point of view, there's value to that, right? The thing we've been saying with Amukamara for years, there is value to the certainty of a guy who you know is going to be reasonable. He's not going to be a complete disaster. He's not going to be a tremendous liability. He'll get beaten every now and again, but you can do a hell of a lot worse, and the value in knowing that is important. Yeah, pretty average over the last three years. 57th percentile coverage grade, 48th percentile forced incompletion percentage, right in the middle, right in the middle of everything. Do you know what his coverage grade is with no pressure, Sam? Over the, exactly 50th percentile. So there you go. There you go. So, yeah, he's basically been like his grades are absurdly consistent. 66 to 69 in one, two, four of the last five years, which I'm pretty sure puts him like exactly where Prince Mukamara is. So that's fair. Yeah, I like, you know, they should be a little bit better on the back end. They've been really bad defensively the last couple of years. And yeah, their grades are in the same place. Prince Mukamara is like 69 every year. Whatever. Prince feels same guy feels better. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the Bengals. At least they'll be exciting to watch. The struggle there is going to be that division, too. I think that whole division with Big Ben coming back, it is uh, a challenge, uh, depending on how Baker and the Browns bounce back and if uh, the Ravens and Lamar can keep doing what they did last season. So once again, you went more because of the draft. Your three teams, the Bengals, Broncos, and Cowboys, it was based off what they did in the draft. That's why you thought they were most improved. My teams, my third team is going to be the Arizona Cardinals. And, of course, the biggest move they make is trading for DeAndre Hopkins. So I was all about Rivers and the Colts, Brady and the Bucs, and now Hopkins and the Cardinals because I think those established players for this year make all these teams better. But the Cardinals, not only do they get new Hopkins, but they also bring in Isaiah Simmons uh, at linebacker at a position where they were one of the three worst coverage teams uh, their their linebackers had one of the three worst coverage grades last year. It was just bad. So just having Simmons in, even as a rookie, should upgrade them there. And then stealing Josh Josh Jones as a potential starting tackle yeah. in the third round. I think just those three moves alone. Plus, we still did really like the Cardinals draft picks from 2018 or 19. So they're all just going to get better this year. So I'm picking the Cardinals as one of my most improved. I mean, I think this was the answer. <laughs> like, this is the one you wanted, the, uh, we, right? We can make the case for all for all the other teams, but I think the Cardinals is the correct answer to this question. Like, it's impossible to overstate how good that new Hopkins trade was for them. It's one of the best trades, one of the most lopsided trades in the last twenty, thirty years of NFL history. It's right up there with the Herschel Walker trade, with the Ricky Williams trade. Like, the only thing that prevents it being as good as those trades is less volume, the volume in terms of yeah. trade, trade collateral coming back. But they traded for one of the best receivers in the NFL who's got a proven history of getting it done basically regardless of the quarterback. And the make-weight for that was offloading a contract they didn't want any part of anyway in David Johnson. Like, they were already having buyer's remorse on David Johnson's contract. There have been reports floating in the offseason before that happened that they were willing to... Um, they were willing to cut him. Like they were just going to get rid of that contract just to get it off the books. Now those were eventually like a lot of people said, look, those were unfounded rumors. That wasn't really going to happen. 
perhaps because they had a trade yeah. on the hook to do it instead. But the point is, this was a contract they wanted rid of anyway. And not only did they get rid of it, but they used it as a collateral to get one of the best receivers in the NFL, which was their like key area of need, which frees them up to take a guy like Isaiah Simmons in the first round instead of one of the best receivers in the draft. The Josh Jones thing, like you said, is an absolute master. Like that might be the best value pick in the entire draft. We still have no idea what the hell happened with that. Like he was a first round talent all day long compared to some of these other players. And yet he slips to the third. So that whole collection, plus, you know, Kenyon Drake is still there. Like he was a potential walk away guy or a, a, a potential loss. They brought him in. I still think this is like the perfect offense for Kenyon Drake. Um, I think it's, you know, it's important to sort of, it's important to qualify basically any comment with running backs <laughs> at the to. moment. But Kenyon Drake is a, it's not that all running backs are completely interchangeable regardless of environment, right? Kenyon Drake, I think, is rarely qualified to be successful in this type of offense, which will generate more space than most offenses because of the extra wide splits, because of the the wide open passing, the you know, the the kind of system that Cliff Kingsbury wants to run. Kenyon Drake is unusually qualified to be able to take advantage of that extra space in a way that, you know, pick your random power back is not, right? So it's not that you know, Kenyon Drake moves the needle, but it's if you're going to run this kind of system, he's a perfect back for it. And here's part of the reason. They had, let me find my exact quote here. The Cardinals averaged uh, 2.1 yards before contact per rush. That's just their running backs. That was second highest in the NFL. Uh, so that was the spread rushing attack uh, of Arizona because it wasn't necessarily their run blocking grades didn't necessarily get better. Um, and I think this is also one of the beauties of the PFF system, right? You could say, hey, the run game got better, and it not, it's not necessarily because of the players blocking. He had, you know, the, the running backs had more yards before contact, and they were spreading to run, and they were doing some, they were just an efficient running attack. Plus, you know, having Kyler Murray back there instead of maybe a Josh Rosen or a Sam Bradford from the previous season. A lot of reasons for optimism when you take a guy like Kenyon Drake and put him into space. So, yeah, uh, they're not a. They've got some question marks. I think in the back seven, Patrick Peterson looked pretty bad at times last year. Uh, he's maybe not the same player. It's his worst season since his rookie year. Byron Murphy, the guy that we loved, really struggled as a rookie. Like those guys need to get better if the Cardinals are going to be the offseason darlings. I think, but um, starting with Nuke and uh, the way that the trickle down to that wide receiver core um, that should help a lot. Um, and then takes a little pressure off Larry Fitzgerald. Like Fitz is awesome, but they were feeding him screens a ton last year. Like Larry Fitzgerald should not be a guy that's like catching 20 screens like he did last year. Right. And, and like that should be the Andy Isabella, Christian Kirk world. They've got four weapons to deploy properly. It, you know, and, and that's because they have nuke there to, uh, to set the tone and, and be the top guy. Yeah, I mean, Fitzgerald was basically carrying that receiving core because guys like Isabella and Christian Kirk haven't panned out yet. Like, you know, Kirk's had the playing time. Isabella's had the quality play when he's actually been playing. But between the two of them, like, neither one has actually worked out as a receiver yet. So Fitzgerald has had to continually carry the load. And you're right. Like, Nuke coming in enables Fitz to go back to just being that uber slot uh, possession receiver that he'd morphed into. There's then that role where you where Andy Isabella doesn't have to play 
you know, a thousand snaps and be an every down guy, but he can be a situational deep threat from somewhere. Um, you know, maybe they find this role for Christian Kirk that doesn't involve an awful lot of heavy lifting because New Hopkins is that guy. In theory, it should enable everybody else to be better. All right. So there we go. Our top three most improved teams. I took the Colts, Cardinals and Bucks, not necessarily in that order. And you took the Cowboys, Broncos and Bengals, not necessarily in that order. Let us know in the comments who you think was the most improved team. Did you have any teams that you also wanted to add there? I was thinking about the Eagles. I thought in part just because they're going to be healthy. <laughs> they're going to feel like a most improved <laughs> team. Um, and I like what they've done from a strategy standpoint. But um, I think a lot of teams have done when I evaluate their teams, I'm thinking of like good multi-year moves. And, and I focused a lot on the this year moves with the Colts, Cardinals and Bucks. I think you can make a case for the Browns as well. Um, you know, their whole offseason has been about fixing fixing all the things around Baker Mayfield so that Baker Mayfield can actually be good again rather than the player he was last year. Um, and they're another one who you can count the coaching change into that. Oh, for sure. You know, a lot like Dallas. Dallas, I think a big part of my thing was they changed Jason Garrett from Mike McCarthy. That should be an upgrade. The Browns get rid of Freddie Kitchens, bring in Kevin Stefanski, who has this proven track record in terms of the system he's bringing with him. Not necessarily, you know, his track record isn't that extensive, but the system has got this very good track record of getting career years out of uh, quarterbacks, including Kirk Cousins. So if that, with the personnel the Browns are brought in, the fixing of the offensive line, the Browns should be much better next year. All right, let's get into some questions, Sam. You want to go through them, or do you want me to read them? Sure. All right. Uh, I'll go through them. The, this first one has been sitting in this doc for a while, and we've just never gotten around to it, so I like answering it this week. Um. Basically, would you rather start your franchise with the very best offensive line, receiving core, tight end, running back, and then an average quarterback, or the the absolute best quarterback, so effectively Patrick Mahomes, and then rank average supporting cast everywhere else? I think if you're talking very – you're just talking offense here. If you're talking the very best of everything, mm -hmm. this would be the one place where I might go – not quarter. I might go with the supporting cast. Right. I mean, you think about it like basically Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton versus Patrick Mahomes, except Patrick Mahomes has to play with the all-average team on offense, but Andy Dalton gets the all-pro at every spot. Yeah, like the all-pro at every <laughs> spot. Right. So you're talking Julio Jones, Tyreek Hill, you know, whoever, New Hopkins, I guess, Michael, Michael Thomas, Thomas right. one of those guys. Uh, tight end, you Kittle, Kittle, Kittle or Kelsey, running back Christian McCaffrey. And you have a perfect offensive line. You have the best right. offensive line, right? Yeah. Um, yes. I think I would take that because that once again, I mentioned from the Brady example, the fact that positively graded throws tend to fluctuate. They depend on mm -hmm. the supporting cast. So if you throw the average quarterback back there with the three best wide receivers, the best tight end and time to throw. So like four or 5% more clean pockets. So less volatility there. You're going to get the high, you know, you're going to get a ton of positively great. You're going to move the chains, right? You're going to create offense. Plus you're going to create mismatches with McCaffrey out of the backfield. That's when McCaffrey's nice and valuable when he's like the number five option in the passing attack um, versus, okay, Patrick Mahomes and a bunch of Dontrell Inman's would still be pretty good, 
right? Patrick Mahomes and who who made our all average team? So Patrick Mahomes is throwing to like Dontrell Inman, uh, Austin Hooper, Thomas Jones yes. out of the backfield, <laughs> right? I mean, I would probably lean the average quarterback. God, I don't know. I, 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 I think I probably would as well. If it's so, my issue is like, Andy, okay, now I'm down ten in the Super Bowl. Yes, that's where I but, have an issue. I'm down ten in the Super Bowl. Andy, go make some plays. See, I think that's the failing in a lot of these sort of logic things is making your moves based off like the outlier, right? Like the Ravens. The Ravens' offense sucks because when they got buried in a hole, Lamar Jackson wasn't able to dig them out of it against the Titans. It's like, all right, but that's like the first time all year they got in a hole. Okay, it happened at the worst possible time, and that's why they didn't advance in the playoffs. But that's probably not a reason to junk the entire system no. that crushed everybody else. Like, oh, Plus, like, how many times in the history of sports have teams or players been labeled as like, can't win the big one, or they're not equipped to win the big one? Like Jordan and the Bulls right. didn't win for the first eight years of his career. Peyton Manning didn't win for the first eight years of his career. And even when he did, he wasn't even good in the playoffs. It was just like things broke his way. Um, if, if like the Ravens lose their first playoff game again this year and Lamar has another fantastic season, everybody's gonna be like, that's it. Lamar can't win it. Can't like he's one year away. He really is. Lamar's one year away from being labeled a guy that can't win the big one and all that stuff. He's not even one year away. He already is. Apparently, 31 quarterbacks have lost their first two playoff games, and the only two that have gone on to win Super Bowls have been the Manning brothers huh. from that point. Interesting. So Lamar's already in that bucket. Like, he's already being I was trying to give him one more that. year before we actually no. tortured him like he's that. He's already there. But, like, that's not reason enough. Like, he's still got plenty of career left. That's not reason enough to just to your point, junk the whole system or junk Lamar or anything like, like that. And and the league has been doing this for decades. Like the run and shoot got dumped as a system because of that game against uh, Buffalo, the comeback, right? Because right? they can't run at the clock. Can't hold the 32 Even, point lead. Sorry. Ign- ignoring the fact that that collapse, like the, the comeback started like in the, the start of the third quarter. Like they, you're not running the ball out from a half of football away. And the point is, if you had a, like a 30-point lead in the first place, running the ball out wasn't your problem. The problem is you stopped scoring. Like, it's just idiocy. Like, that was not the reason the run and shoot should be run out of the league, and yet it kind of was. It's like, oh, look, they can't run out the clock. They can't e- keep a big lead. It's just ridiculous. So if if that's the logic, right, it's like, well, I'm Dan Tan in the Super Bowl. I want... Patrick Mahomes more than I want Andy Dalton and a crew of superstars. I just, that just seems like bad process to me. Like that's, that's not the way of doing it. The way of doing it is like any given Sunday, who's giving you a better chance to win. And I think it probably is the Andy Dalton and a group of superstars. All right. That's what I'm going to lean with too. Give me, give us the average quarterback. What else you got this week? So this one's kind of interesting. Would the lack of fans in the stands, assuming that's what it's going to come to this, this fall, um, and the loss of real crowd noise help guys we typically say fold under pressure. So the Kirk Cousins of the world, right? Captain Checkdown, the guy that kind of collapses once the chips are down. Like, does it, so I was listening to a podcast, uh, Second Captains, where they were sort of talking about this in relation to soccer, right? There's this whole group of players who are supposedly like incredible in training, right? You get them... People are just in awe of what these guys can do in training. But as soon as you get to like the actual big occasion, 
the cauldron of the crowd noise and all that, they never show up. And it's like, why are these guys not as good in real game situations as they are just crushing people when there's no pressure in training? And Kirk Cousins, I think, is a similar kind of idea, right? Whenever the chips are down in the biggest possible moment, Cousins always seems to wilt rather than rather than the Tom Brady-type players who stand up to be counted, the Joe Montanas, the Tom Brady's, the true clutch players. If you take crowd noise out of that, is it just like training for those guys? Do they suddenly become all pros? No, I don't, I, I don't think it's a huge difference because it's still – because it's still like it's still the competition factor. I don't think Kirk. I think the. But how much of the competition though is like, there's like a sound that the crowd makes when it's the two minute drill. You know, the the noise is a cacophony. You got to get this thing running, and you you know you know the pressure's there. If it's just silence and it's just I, another I don't series. Here is I'm a small sample size, but like I think, I think too many people in the media. Because they didn't play, I'm going to play the didn't play card. I think because they didn't play, the only thing they can relate to is like, oh, when I played sports, like in Little League or whatever the or high school or wherever the last time you played sports was, it was like, oh, when things were pressure, when pressure was on, I felt pressure, right? And then I think they relate that to pressure being a place where you perform below your standard, right? When I think the reality is every single professional athlete experiences butterflies or excitement or whatever, something, but it, it, the reality is it doesn't really affect performance. And the real extreme is like the little league kid, like the kid who like never plays baseball, say after 10 years old, because he's like, he just feels so much angst and pressure at the plate and he strikes out all the time. Like that doesn't exist at the highest level of sports. Right. And I feel like there's too many people that try to like relate to that when it's just like Kirk Cousins isn't like, oh, you know, the crowd, no, it's too much. Right. I think it's just over time, Kirk Cousins and Matt Stafford and whoever else you want to throw into that bucket, they're just not going to be as good as Tom Brady or the best players. Right. Um, and there is a difference between practice where, yeah, nothing's really on the line. And then the game, something's on the line where maybe you do act a little differently, you perform a little differently, but I don't know if it's the crowd noise that makes that happen, right? So I think there's pressure. It might make guys perform a little bit differently. Um, I think the Bradys of the world have a better way. They have uh, amnesia. I had a pitching coach who used to tell me you need to have amnesia, right? You need to literally forget everything that happened, positive or negative, previous to this and just focus on the moment. I do think the best players have that ability to do that, but I don't think crowd noise is the is like the factor there that dictates things positive or negative. I mean, obviously these are, this is complicated and there's a ton of factors that go into this stuff, but I think crowd yes. noise is, Oh, I think crowd noise is definitely a part All of right. it. I mean, so the UFC has been back for a few weeks, right? With, with no crowd. And those fighters have been saying it's different. Like you don't, you don't feed off the crowd the way you do normally. And you know, there's, it changes the way you fight. And these are guys that like crowd noise or no, you're in there like essentially fighting for your life with another human trying to knock your face off. Like crowd noise consciously or not affects how you're going out there and doing what you're doing. Like you feed off the, ah, this is getting wishy-washy with the energy that comes from the uh, quick hold up the Mark Schlereth. You, you feed off the energy <laughs> that comes 
from the crowd. Like whether it's whether it's the, like a direct correlation to when that energy happens, you're going to play worse is different, right? But I think I don't think it's possible to quantify the impact that that crowd has. Yeah, and I'm not the removal of it. Has. I'm looking at it from like a pure result standpoint. I do not disagree at all. Like playing in front of a great crowd is awesome, and like you you feel it, you feel, you feel great, you feed off it, positive or negative, whatever it is, that's great. But I don't know if it's going to change the end result. I also think UFC or fighting is a little different. Um, but like even in this, right, even well, in what of course we do, it's different. But when we do but the point is, like, if if you're hearing guys who whether or not there's a crowd there, the stakes for them are like getting your face kicked in, knocked out yeah. and potentially brain damaged. When those guys are saying that the lack of a crowd is like changing how I can't remember. I think it was Justin Gaethje was saying that like, or he literally didn't like rush in. He changed how he was fighting because like had the crowd noise been there when he connected with this shot, he'd have like heard this wave of energy and he'd have like launched himself in, try and finish in then with no crowd. He was like, I'm just going to keep, keep being patient. It's just another, like I, for a guy like that to be able to say that, look, this is fundamentally changing how we're doing things is huge. And I think there's a very real chance that there's a subsect of players that consciously or not wilt a little bit I, when the crowd noise is there that wouldn't. I would I, I would say that the, the guys that, that it'll impact more are like the Ray Lewis types that might feed off that emotion more. Yeah. Right. The so other way there's too. definitely certain players and positions that can feed off of it. Whereas like the dudes throwing the ball and just like having to make like intricate decisions and stuff like that. I don't know if they're affected as much. I don't know. Um, so you seem to think, yes, I think less. So what else you got? Well, you must have pray, played in front of some pretty, uh, pretty big crowds back in the day in the uh, minor leagues. Um, 13, 15,000 might've been wow. the most. Mm, it's better than I Maybe 15,000 around the fourth. What was July? the fewest you played in front of? Oh gosh. I mean, when, so like when you're at, <laughs> when you're at spring training, they spring training has like the major league field where they have actually in practice field and then stadium where they have games. And then they have the minor league field where it's like four diamonds all near each other. And the four main minor league teams all play in a diamond. I mean, there's literally no fans there. And I always performed great in spring training. <laughs> I was great in spring training. So maybe I was the guy he throws, throw no fans out there. I'm fine. I'm the practice yeah. player. Um, no wonder you didn't believe in it. No, there was other because reasons. You're the guy. There was other reasons. It's because hitters just weren't ready in spring training, and I made sure I was in midseason form. So I always looked good <laughs> in spring training. I was always dominant. I, I was I was like fool's gold in spring training every year. Um, but yeah, I think we got up to like thirteen to fifteen thousand in Sacramento. Maybe I could be exaggerating by eight to eight or ten thousand. But yeah, eight to ten thousand. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot. But like three, I think thirty five hundred screaming fans in Quebec City in a tight area was uh was intense the 2005 canadian american league championship that was uh hmm. that was quite intense thanks for asking wow. though thanks for asking anytime so i've anytime played between your, uh, i've played in front of zero to fifteen thousand. Zero to zero to fifteen thousand plus, plus or minus, or minus 10, 10 yeah so figure that um, one out yeah all right so this this one is um or is any team this year, or perhaps the best way of asking this is, which team is most likely to do a 49ers and go 4-12 and 12 to the Super Bowl? Like, the old worst to first? Uh, Got to remember who was worst last year. Who was, who was <laughs> in last last year? Give me a second here. 
Where did the Bucks finish? So you got a choice of the Dolphins. Yeah. The Chargers, the Bengals, the Jags. That's the AFC. And the NFC is the Redskins, the Cardinals, the Lions, and the Panthers. So I think the I would say the Cardinals and the Dolphins. The Dolphins. Yes. Wow. So I think the Dolphins, because the AFC East is more wide open than it's ever been. We love the yeah. Bills roster, but there's still massive question marks with Josh Allen. And if you were putting the quarterbacks in the AFC East on paper, based off the way they've played football the last two years, you'd be hard-pressed not to say that the Dolphins have the best quarterback situation. Yeah, but it's still not good. The ba- But they have the best. We're, we're trying right, that division. This team's got to wake the Super Bowl. I'm not... Uh, to go to the Super Bowl? Oh, yeah. I, I'm just picking a division winner. Doing a 49ers. 4-12 and 12 to the Super Bowl. I mean, none of these are going to look good. <laughs> Who's going to look good on paper? Oh, the Chargers? I mean, nobody's going to look good. I, I mean, the Chargers aren't a terrible... Are, uh, aren't oh, a terrible Because shot. you're a Tyrod homer. I, they don't... The Chargers need to... So, they're, like, obviously, they aren't going to be better than the Chiefs, right? But if, they, if the Chiefs go 12-4 and four again... The Chargers become the wild card yeah, they've got from a, that division. They have a roster that can do it, yeah. Right. That's a roster that could make a Super Bowl run, ideally assuming somebody else knocks off the Chiefs along the way for them. I, like I, would, that, go, I, that, I would go with my like most. The Chargers can make a Super Bowl before the Dolphins can. Yeah, Super Bowl, I wouldn't say the Dolphins. I, I was looking at the Dolphins through the lens of, like, can win the AFC East. Yeah. I think the Cardinals, we already talked about them as the most improved team. Because the other parallel, it's it's Kyler Murray taking a year two jump at quarterback. It's the addition of Nuke, but it's also like the Niners had an injured, not playing as well Richard Sherman in 2018. The Cardinals had Patrick Peterson, six game suspension, coming back not really looking like himself. Like he could bounce back. Like there are places on the Cardinals roster that you could see them improving that are the right places for them, you know, to win 11 or 12 games. A lot of this is a bunch of what if because that's why they were bad last year. But I'd say the Cardinals probably have the best shot. Yeah. What if Burrow's like legit special right off the bat? Yeah. What happens with the Bengals? They the problem is that's such a beast of a division. It is. Like even just getting getting through that division at the other side, particularly if we're if us and other people are right in thinking the Browns are going to be much better this year. Like you then have to and. Roethlisberger is anything like his former self. They're going to beat each other. You up. potentially have to get, yeah, you could potentially have to get through three playoff caliber teams to get through that division. Like that's just a nightmare. Yeah, I like that. Good question. Um, yeah, I like that one as well. What else? I think I had one more. One more to wrap it up. Uh, one more. The mobility I I one. Get this tab back on. Yes. So this is really interesting to me because. I'm in this mode now of going back through history and, and looking at various other times and eras. This guy's basically asking, I haven't given names for any of these, so whoops. Um, are we at the point in the league where some level of mobility is required if you're to be a premier quarterback prospect? Do you think a team would have entertained uh, potential or would what? Would have entertainment potential weigh in on their decision if they were to draft a developmental pocket passer? Versus a more net pass or better athlete. I mean, okay, the second part of this question is less <laughs> intriguing to me. But the first part, I think, is a very real thing of has the league developed to the point now where these statuesque pocket passers are not no longer the prototype and we actually need an Aaron Rodgers or a Mahomes or, you know, you don't need to be Lamar, but you need to be a guy that gives something. 
with his legs. Otherwise, you're just not as good as these other guys. So I would say Mahomes and Burrow are both probably similar in that, like they're they move well enough to pick up yards with their legs, right? Um, Andrew Luck was kind of the beginning of that, not the beginning of that, but the beginning of here's this guy that's labeled the pocket passer who, oh by the way can run well, it, really well. Yeah, this is the thing, right? When you start going back through history, this is this might be the most cyclical thing in the league. Like we, you know, the we everyone talks about the league operating in cycles. This delineation between immobile statuesque pocket passers and you know, ad-libbing um move, movement type quarterbacks has been going on for decades. And this is why we talked a little bit about the you know the Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf draft, and that was kind of a, 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 a contrast between those two, right? Peyton Manning was the statue, immobile pocket passer, and Ryan Leaf had a little bit more movement to him. He would get out of the pocket, he would make throws on the run, and it's when you look back, it's like, well, this is insane. How did anybody think that was a conversation? But when you cast your mind back to like the league landscape in '98. Like the quarterback, everyone was looking. Brett Favre was the best quarterback in the NFL, right? Brett Favre never stayed within the confines of the offense. Steve Young was still at his best. Mark, Mark Brunel. Brunel, your man, Steve, your guy. Mark Brunel was, you know, a mobile quarterback. Like the league was suddenly full of these guys, and it wasn't until Peyton Manning and Tom Brady kind of became the best quarterbacks in the NFL that the league swung back towards these pocket passers. Like, okay, Drew Bledsoe was still around, so there was a few of them. But like the one, the the guys everybody was looking for were the next Brett Favre, the next Steve Young, the the next mobile quarterbacks who could still pass. Like that was the seen as the prototype before it went back in the other direction. So, yeah, here's what I think, man. I think it's easier to find a guy that's at least mobile than it is to find Brady, Manning, Breeze, Marino. Who else? Who else goes into like the really not creating with their legs. Now, all those guys are absolutely brilliant in the pocket. Pocket movement, agility, feel, all the stuff that, like, quarterbacks really need, which is way more important than the ability to, like, run a 4.6 or a 4.7 as a quarterback. Like, those guys have pocket mobility. But when we're talking outside the pocket mobility, I think it's much easier to find those guys because if you just look at all the guys that have come in, um, even, you know, like Carson Wentz, Pretty, pretty fast. Like he moves pretty well. Andrew Luck moves well. Aaron Rodgers was, you know, he, he's probably a better athlete than Mahomes, right? As far as running around and, and making plays. So like all those guys can do it. I, but I think it's easier to find a guy that at least moves reasonable outside the pocket than it is to find guys that are so good as far as pocket mobility and accuracy and decision-making and all the things that made, Brady, Peyton, Marino, Breeze makes those guys Hall of Famers. So I don't think the league just shuts off to those guys, but I think chasing them, you just you take them when they're there. Like if if Tom Brady came into the league right now or Peyton Manning came into the league right now, they're not less valuable than they were 20 years ago. They're awesome. They're fantastic. They're going to work, but at the same time, chasing after and like finding those guys just because a dude's like six, five and has a good arm. Like that's, that's problematic. I would say, does that make sense? Like they're just, they're fine, but they're hard to find. It's like the, my pitching example, like Greg Maddox threw 
like eight miles an hour below the average in, in, in baseball. But because he was so good at everything else, he was incredible. Like chasing, like you're not going to get, you don't draft a million guys that are throwing 83 miles an hour just because Greg Maddox was successful. He was the outlier. He was rare. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea that special is going to play regardless of what the skill set is, but I think it might be a reasonable thing to suggest that the baseline now, or like the prototype, the thing that you're, so when you're drawing up what the ideal quarterback or what the standard looks like, I think now it might include mobility. Whereas if you did it 10 years ago, it wouldn't have. Yeah. I, I, I love using my David Garrard example. I always thought David Garrard was a, just an efficient quarterback. Like if just as a passer, he was number, he was Andy Dalton. He was like number 15 as a passer, but because of what he added as a scrambler three or four times a game, he was top 10 from a production standpoint, like quarterback production, top 10 or 12. Like it just gave him a little bit of an edge. I do think there is a point where uh, in right now in the NFL, if you're trying to split hairs between QB 12 and QB 20, I think the mobility aspect is going to help bridge that gap. Right. And I think that is where it does come in. And it is uh, it is really important because it's tough to play. It's such a, a Hall of Fame level with these other guys that we're talking about. But yeah, you're right. It's been a story forever. Montana versus Young, the one, one of the things you're diving into, right? Well, even Mon- like Yo Bank, even Montana was seen as a sort he of could move. scrambly type quarterback yeah. right at the start. He could definitely move. Cool, man. That's great. Good show. Good show. Let's wrap it up. Yeah. Um, so yeah. uh, that's our, our Monday episode. Most improved teams. Uh, as I said earlier, go back. If you haven't already, go listen to the Randy Moss episode and let us know even more about what you think about the episode, the format, ways to improve it and other topics that you guys are, are really, really interested in because uh, we have some time to at least put some topics on the table, do some research and, um, and try to duplicate that same format. That was a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back again on Thursday. PFF NFL podcast. Everybody have a good week. quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did go check out kyler murray and his nfl debut that's my favorite thing about nfl game pass you can go back and watch at any time and if you haven't watched a condensed game yet you have to try it out it's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire nfl game in the fraction of the time it normally takes it's how i'm able to follow all the mvp candidates all the breakout stars and of course your waiver wire pickups all season long to see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at nfl.com slash pro football focus NFL.